Welcome to a special episode of Do Justice, the podcast. Hello and welcome to this special Human Rights Day episode of Do Justice, the podcast. My name is Brianne Swan, and I am Minister for Social and Ecological Justice at Shining Waters Regional Council of the United Church of Canada. Human Rights Day is observed every year on the 10th of December, the day the United Nations General Assembly adopted in 1948 the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a milestone document that proclaims the inalienable rights which everybody is entitled to as human beings, regardless of race, color, religion, sex, language, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. Available in more than 500 languages, it is the most translated document in the world. In commemoration of Human Rights Day, I invited David Atwood, founder of the Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, to join me for a conversation. David is a retired oil company engineer and has spent more than 25 years working to abolish the death penalty in Texas. He is a committed Christian, a student of nonviolence, and a tireless activist. I am so pleased he was able to join us. There are a few minutes towards the beginning of our talk where our cell phone connection wasn't the greatest, and I apologize for that, but I promise... David is well worth waiting out those few minutes. Here is our conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today, David. Very happy to do so. So December 10th is Human Rights Day, and I wanted to speak with you because of your work around abolishing the death penalty in Texas, a topic that is very, very near and dear to me. I've given listeners a bit of a background on who you are in the intro, but I wonder if we could start with you just describing how you came to this work and and founding the TCADP. Well, it it actually uh, happened in in my church uh, the first time I really even heard about the death penalty. And uh, it was a, uh, we got a a request from a, a person who was helping to put out a little newsletter for prisoners on death row. I was on a, on a human rights committee in my church and they asked if we would fund this newsletter so they could publish it on the outside. And uh, that was really, that was many years ago, but that was really the first time I really knew anything about the death penalty. I had moved to Texas from the East coast in 1972, and actually in 1972, um, Texas was not 
executing anybody. They didn't have the death penalty then. And uh, so it wasn't really an issue that was being talked about. So it really wasn't until uh, many years later that I even became aware of it. I was actually working for an oil company. I mean, that's what brought me down to Texas. And uh, I was in, in a corporate job in a, in a big oil company. And uh, But I had become interested uh, gradually over time in human rights issues. And so this particular issue really, for some reason, really caught my interest. And I can't really explain that. But I started to research um, the death penalty in Texas. And I found out that Texas and even Harris County, where Houston is located, was the number one place in the country where the death penalty was taking place. And that really caught my interest because I also found out that no, there really wasn't any organization that was in a really strong way uh, working against the death penalty. And so that that was really the first thing that pulled me into the, um, the whole issue. And, uh, and then I, I had some, uh, I met some people from Europe actually, who, uh, had been coming over to visit prisoners on death row. And they encouraged me when they went back to Europe to follow up and, and visit some of the, the guys on death row that they had been visiting. And I did that. And I think those visits to prisoners is what really, really cemented my concern. Because I saw them, you know, they're described in the newspapers and television and as horrible, horrible people. And, and they have some pretty horrible things. There's no getting around that. But I saw them as human beings when I visited them. And that really changed my whole attitude about the sub-matter. And that was the beginning of it all right there. It all started in church. <laughs> I like the it beginning did. of that. It yeah. did. It really, it really did. It was a human rights committee at my church in Houston. And um, uh, we had, and the person that actually came and put in this request to us was a, a Catholic no, <laughs> and it wasn't Sister Helen Prage, anti-death penalty nun. It wasn't Sister Helen. It was another nun, a woman uh, who's now lives up in New Jersey, and uh, she presented the idea of this newsletter and the funding to us, and we picked up on it. So that was the beginning. It was in church. <laughs> yeah, I've read in in your bios um, connected to your book detour. Um, detour to death row and about about the fact that your faith informs this kind of of work so like what what is it about your faith that draws you well uh, I really there's a lot of things that things that draw me into work against the death penalty but my faith is certainly one of them and I, I really do believe in this life now, some you know some people just talk about the sacredness of life from perspective. Um, and of course, in the Catholic Church, but I really do believe in this concept you know, for everyone, and and that includes 
people that commit uh, crime and are in um, I believe that their thoughts are sacred too. And if you if you visit the prison and you learn about their life, you learn about what happened to them as children, and you you see, I mean, it's very hard to learn about that history to say that this is just you know some evil person has done some terrible thing. You see them as a you see the factors that went into their early life uh, that caused them to get off track later. And many of them, you know, have had psychological problems. Uh, sometimes they developed, you know, um, drug and alcohol problems later on as a result of what happened to them as children. And one of the things I've always tried to do is to learn about, and, and many times when you when you them, you also eventually get to meet family members, and you get to know about their situation. And so, I believe that their lives are sacred too. They they should not be executed. They should be um, rehabilitated to the extent mm-hmm. possible. Many of them become rehabilitated. Um, people don't just believe that, but if you visit somebody on death row for eight or 10 years and you see change from your eyes over this period of time, then you, you can believe in the rehabilitation. So I think in the church, the sacredness of life is the concept really from that perspective pulled me into working in sanity. Yeah, I, I I appreciate what you say about when you get to know people and you see them as human beings and you get to learn about their their story and stuff. One of the things I often say to people um, when I come back because I've I've been there a few times is mm-hmm. is that you know pe- people don't end up on death row um, growing up in the Brady Bunch, you know, <laughs> like right. it's. It's, right. it's, 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 you know, you don't generally um, end up on death row if you come with a, from a family with money or a family that has been very nurturing. And um, right. there's always these, I've never met anybody or who hasn't had some sort of really tragic um, tra- story around mm. how they came to the point. Right, right. And, yeah. and, and like you say, there's nobody on death row that isn't poor. Yeah. Which that gets back into the legal system because um, people who end up on death row have not had the financial means to hire the best attorneys. Mm-hmm. And so not only have had usually problems when they were young in their upbringing, uh, like a nurturing that you mentioned. Uh, they, when it when it comes to being cold, they haven't had the money to hire the best defense attorneys. Mm-hmm. So you get court appointed attorneys who, even if the court appointed attorney wanted to do a good job, they usually don't have the financial resources themselves to hire good investigators, good mitigation experts, and those types of things. So it's like you know, everything is against a person 
in that kind of a situation. And, and those are the ones that end on death row. Yeah, and and the thing that I found really shocking, actually, in journeying with um, with Romero Gonzalez, is that once, uh, like, once you, if you happen to actually find really competent, engaged legal representation, it's not enough in your uh, in your appeals to be able to say, well, the attorneys should have brought this forward, or the attorneys should have said this, that it. The only stuff that can be really brought forward in any significant way is stuff that couldn't possibly have been known at Correct. at the time right. um, that the the trials were going on, and so so incompetent or overworked or um, just completely unengaged legal representation actually shuts down a lot of wind uh, doors. Yeah. yeah, it's very very difficult to turn things around mm-hmm. after the original trial. Yeah, and uh, it's just uh, the appeals, and in in many times, you know, what we found out in Texas was that the state appeals court, the highest criminal court in the state, um, many times would take the the information presented by the prosecution at face value and wouldn't even do any investigation on their own. They would right. they would just take what came from the trial court and say, okay, that's it. And so they wouldn't even really do their work, what we thought of their work. And then several years ago on a federal level, there was a a federal law put in place that even restricted federal appeals. So um, it it became, once, once the trial takes place, and if a person doesn't have the most excellent attorney with good financial resources, then it's very difficult later on to turn things around. Mm-hmm. It has been it has been done, and uh, and it's usually later on when uh, when some family member or some friend or some advocate gets involved that you can you know the different information, more information comes out. And we've had, believe it or not, it's, it's, it's sort of an incredible number, but we've had over, I think, 170 people later on, they were already on death row, they'd already mm-hmm. gone to death row, that were exonerated, shown to be innocent, which is another reason I'm against the death penalty, because the legal process is not a perfect process by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you you bring up you bring up the federal system and so just a quick background for some for some Canadian listeners who may not be aware um each state in the US has their own justice system and criminal code in addition to the federal government in Canada our judicial system uh, our criminal code is purely federal. There's only one. So it seems very confusing mm-hmm. that there can be so many uh, in yeah. the United States. Um, so when people hear me talk about Romero, who's scheduled for execution, he's been convicted and sentenced under the laws in the state of Texas. Um, but right now, what we're seeing in the news is how the federal government in the United States is I'm not sure what other way there is to say this, but on something of a a death rampage uh, right now. Um, Mm -hmm. Up until 2020, there had not been a federal execution in, I think, 17 
years. Yeah, um, I guess 17 years, right. Yeah, and so eight prisoners have been executed since July. There's five more scheduled to proceed before the end of Donald Trump's presidency. So I'm wondering, what do you make of the sudden urgency of the Trump administration in executing well, federal prisoners? Yeah, it's it's just horrific what's happening. Um, even though we had people on the in the federal death penalty system, that, you know, on federal um, in federal prison and on death row in federal prison, uh, previous presidents had not uh, gone forward with the executions; they just held them there. Mm-hmm. But Donald Trump, as a lot of us know, is a different kind of animal. <laughs> I mean, he's he, you know, he showed his support for the death penalty many years ago, uh, before he became president, when he supported the execution of what we call the um, Central Park Five. Right. Uh, five five African American boys, literally boys, they're all mm-hmm. under twenty, who were later shown to be innocent, and he had put an advertisement in a New York paper calling for their execution. Trump did. Yeah. And even when the innocence was shown, you know, in recent years, uh, when he was asked about it, he said, no, they still should be executed. So he has a uh, a mentality which is, quite frankly, reflective of some of the politicians in Texas. Because the death penalty, you know, as we found out over time, is just very, very political. Mm-hmm. Depending on who are the people who was the governor and now who is the president and um, so president trump and attorney general barr by the way barr is catholic <laughs> it goes to show that some people That's are catholic when it comes to sanctity of yeah yeah when it comes to sanctity of life they're very particular they're not you know they pick and choose but anyway so barr and trump have started up the federal death penalty again. And it, it, not not the penalty itself exactly, but the execution of prisoners who are on federal death right. row. And so um, I, I don't know what would be in a person's mind to, to do this because uh, it's, you know, the people in prison, in the federal prison that are on death row there, they're not going anywhere. They're not hurting anybody it's not necessary to go through their execution, but there is a, there's a a mental, there's a mentality among certain politicians that are, what I call it, it's a mentality of punishment and death versus a punishment of rehabilitation in life. And Barr and Trump and the, the several governors in Texas in particular, we We've had, I think, three governors in a row now that have been all very pro-death penalty, starting with uh, George W. Bush years ago right. and then Perry, and now our current governor. You know, they, and then you, so it becomes a very political thing. And it, it's not so much about, you know, are we protecting society or are we, uh, yeah, are we protecting society in some way or making the world a better place? It's not that at all. It's politics. And they think that executing people, the death penalty and executing people is 
is good politically for them personally. And that's just, you know, it's sort of insane, quite frankly, the way I look at it. But those are, those are, you know, we have a number of governors that have that mindset, including the governor of Texas, Abbott, mm-hmm. and, and President Trump has that mindset. So there you are. It's, it's sad. It's very disturbing. Yeah, it's 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 abhorrent, actually. Yeah. Really, it, it is. A, yes, it is abhorrent. You've been doing this work a long time, David, like a long time, and it's not just a theoretical, a merely theoretical exercise. You are, you are actually in relationship with a lot of these prisoners. Mm-hmm. So I'm. What is what is the hardest part of doing this kind of I, of work? I think the hardest part is I've actually been inside the prison for three executions as a result of the prisoner uh, being executed, asking me to be there. You know, Mm -hmm. you you just don't go in. You have to be asked. Yeah. Three three people, uh, two of whom I visited on death row for eight or nine years, and I really came to know them. I came to know their family. I saw how they had changed. I saw I saw them as good people. They, they were the, these guys. I would have had no problem if they had come out of prison, having them stay at my home. Mm-hmm. That's what. That's how much I thought of them. But being at their execution and seeing them die before my very eyes, and then being with their families and seeing the pain and the suffering of their families. And I, and, and not only those three guys, but also other being outside the prison, uh, at the, what they call the wall shooting up in Huntsville, Texas, mm-hmm. being out there with other families over the, over the many years and seeing the, the pain that they experienced, having, getting to the point where you just don't have any words of comfort that you can, give to them because I mean, you just can't say, well, it's going to be all right. I mean, that's just a flimsy thing to say. Uh, But I think the pain of seeing somebody executed, somebody that you've come to know and actually care for and to know their families and to know the history of what happened and then the execution goes forward it's just very, very painful. That's probably the most painful thing about the whole process. I get very upset about politicians like I just mentioned and other people who support the death penalty out of ignorance. And a lot of people, probably the majority of people that say they support the death penalty is ignorance about what really is going on or what happened. Mm-hmm. But um, but the pain of, of seeing a, a good person executed, seeing that suffering in the family, going to the funeral, it's very, very hard. And uh, that's, that's, that's probably the most difficult thing about it all. And I've had to really stick in there. And, you know, at times, <laughs> at times, sometimes you feel like walking away and say, well, I'll go do something else. But but I, I feel so strong about this cause about abolition of the death penalty, which I think will be coming because 
even though we haven't abolished the death penalty in Texas, we've seen the number of death sentences and executions drop tremendously over mm-hmm. the years. We know we're headed in the right direction. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. And we probably, quite frankly, won't get there until we have different politicians in place in the state. We have governors and legislators and judges and district attorneys who, they're all politicians, who really don't believe in the death penalty. That'll be a a wonderful day for the state of Texas. Yeah. It'll mean, yeah. it'll mean other things, too, other good things for the state of Texas. It'll be taking care of our children uh, better than we do now and improving the educational system and social services and drug and, re- and alcohol rehabilitation programs. All those things will be improved with better politicians. So I'm in Canada, and I get your your list serves. I get your calls to action that you are distributing on behalf of a number of organizations. And a lot of them say, you know, call your senator or, you know, sign this petition. And I don't have a senator, but I want to do something. So what can people like us outside of the United States do that would be helpful in supporting your work? Well, um, (laughs) the... I I think that even if you're in Canada, a letter to the governor of Texas is is a good thing. I do. He may sort of say it, well, those people don't live here and they're not going to affect my future. But I think I think signing petitions, writing letters, writing letters to the editor. Uh, one thing that I think Canada could do is that I think, and I haven't checked this recently, but. I think that the murder rate in Canada went down after you abolished the death penalty in Canada, if I recall right. But I I, I double check that. Mm -hmm. I think it did. But I think signing letters, writing letters to the editor, writing politicians is a good thing. And and putting on, I've always believed in international pressure. Mm -hmm. And I think it does have an an effect. Um, If anybody has, and this is a tough one, anybody has any extra funds, they could always send a contribution to the Texas Coalition to abolish the death penalty in Austin. Mm -hmm. Um, They can always use financial help in doing what they're doing. I think that uh, you could also look at the, in the faith community, you can always encourage the faith community to, um, in in the United States, uh, to speak out more strongly against the death penalty. We've always had to to push that because the reality is is that for a pastor to get up in front of his congregation, knowing maybe that 50% of them support death penalty and say, we have to take this on as an issue, and it's, it's tough on pastors. I understand mm-hmm. that. But they need to be encouraged and the bishops need to be encouraged to speak out on the sanctity of life. If, uh, you know, a lot of churches have um, a statement against the death penalty in their official social teachings. Mm-hmm. But when it gets down to the individual churches, you very, very rarely hear anything about it. So it's it's a thing that needs to be continually encouraged. That's one thing that I do all the time. And, is to try to encourage 
pastors to speak out against the death penalty. And are not only pastors, but rabbis and imams and everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, it sounds any, like we're, any, in, we're in need of some prophets. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that, uh, that needs to be continued. Um, and um, like I say, I, I think that what we're doing, and we, we have found that our work to abolish the death penalty is to a great extent education. Uh, because as I said before, many people, they really don't know what's going on and they need to be educated. And so anything to do with education, furthering education regarding the realities of really what's happening is very important. And um, so, you know, we do the protests and things like that. But the reality is, is that we people need to be educated and politicians need to be encouraged to to uh, put resources into things that are really will be important, like some of the things I mentioned before. I mean, we we use this phrase you hear it every now and then: "Let's be smart on crime rather than tough on crime." Mm-hmm. Being smart on crime means that you're doing the things to reduce crime. You're trying to help people. Uh, when they're young, you're trying to help families um, to be nurturing families. And when people do have problems, you, you work on those problems and try to prevent crime rather than just responding to crime. So we have to be smart on crime. We have to be strong on prevention. We have to help people. We have to help families. I One of the things just it's a, it's a little bit of a side that really has bothered me over the years is that if you have a family that has got a where the mom and dad or uncle or whoever had a really really rough life themselves growing up how do you stop that cycle of violence how do you stop that harm coming to the children in that family Mm-hmm. I don't have all the answers for that, but it's something that's really important because if you, I mean, I just did one guy on death row, uh, Johnny Paul Penry. He's not on death row right now, but one time when I was visiting him up at the up at the prison death row, he said, "Dave, look at look at my eyes." You know, and as you know, there's a yellow, there's a plastic barrier in between. I looked at his eyes, mm-hmm. and you could see scars on his eyeballs. He said. Dave, that's when my mom, and his mom was very mentally ill, he said, that's when my mom tried to scratch out my eyes. And the only reason I have, she wasn't able to do that, is that I had some sisters who protected me. And my mom used to lock me in the closet and just leave me there for days. The only reason I survived that is that my sisters would slide some food and some liquid under the door. And so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are, you know, a lot of families that have the mom and dad or whoever is there have had serious problems themselves. So if we can someday learn how to interrupt that cycle, what I call that cycle of violence, um, I don't have all the answers for that, but it's something that really needs to be worked on because we would have 
far few people in prison and on death row if we could interrupt those cycles of violence. Yeah, in a Canadian context, we hear about this, um, a similar cycle at work among survivors of um, residential schools. So Indigenous people from across the country mm -hmm. who um, survived residential school, the residential school system, and then had their own kids and how that intergenerational trauma kind of just trickles down. And in, in Saskatchewan, in a province of, of Canada, there's, I think 16% of the population is Indigenous, and yet nearly 80% of the prisoners are Indigenous. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's similar in um, in a lot of ways to Black populations in the United States and the overrepresentation of mm -hmm. um, of people in the prison system. But I am just so pleased that you were able to spend the time and speak with us. Is there anything else that you've just been sitting here wishing I would ask you? And I haven't yet. <laughs> oh, I don't know. We've covered a lot. Um, yeah. We've, we, there's, there's a lot to do. And uh, I, I just, uh, I think as more people become aware of, the reality, I would always encourage people, quite frankly, if they haven't done it, or if, I mean, not everybody can do it, but if, they, if you can visit somebody in prison, it doesn't have to be somebody on death row, but if you visit somebody in prison, and, and it, it gives you an entirely different perspective on life to do that, mm -hmm. uh, to get to know them, even get to know their family if you can, um, it change it really will change your life, and uh, and it's a blessing. I'll say that it's a blessing to do that. It's it's just not a uh, the first time you go. Maybe it'll be a little more a little bit more difficult as you go into the prison and you hear those mill doors clang behind you. <laughs> I mean, it, it it could be the first time it can be a little difficult maybe, but after a while, you know you. You can look forward to those visits, and you and you find some really amazing people in prison. Some very people who have educated themselves, who are great artists, who are um, who be, who have a lot of wisdom. And I, one of the guys that I used to visit until he was executed was a guy named Dominique Green, and he was an African American young man from Houston. He got connected with the teachings of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And Tutu, as you remember, that wrote that book, No Future Without Forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And and um, Dominique took Tutu's teachings to heart. And he started, he changed. He had literally changed before my eyes in terms, he was very angry at first about everything in his life. And, uh, but he changed and he started to talk to all the other prisoners on death row about forgiveness. <laughs> you know, they needed to forgive people who had hurt them. And if they did that, that would free them up personally and make their lives so much better. And um, so uh, in prison, you find, quite frankly, some amazing people. And they're in there for a reason. I'm not saying they aren't, but 
they're incredible and it can enrich your life so much to visit somebody in prison on death row mm-hmm. or even if they are on death row. It can really enrich your life. Yes, well, I can certainly attest to <laughs> Personally, that. you can, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. The life, life-changing, life actually, I would life-changing. not hesitate. Yeah. Life-changing. Well, thank you so much, David. And okay. blessings well, I'm on very your happy to do continued work. That was David Atwood, founder of the Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. For links to David's book, Detour to Death Row, as well as ways you can financially support the work of the TDACP, please visit our website at www.shiningwatersregionalcouncil.ca justice. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back tomorrow with a full episode. I'll be speaking with Imelda Decoteau of the Pray With Our Feet podcast. It's Advent 3 coming up, which means it's all about the joy. We'll be talking about joy as an act of resistance, how love can be revolutionary, and the place for both of these when working towards justice in our communities. We'll see you soon.